0: Book Choice is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people.
1: It's Tuesday, it's August, and it's time to talk about books. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick, with an exceptional show lined up for you this month even if I say so myself, all proudly sponsored by Exclusive Books. The first half of our show today is all reviews, mostly fiction. And the second half of the show, we delve into two big interviews. Beverly Rose Miller will start us off with a review of a novel by Tracy Hawthorne, published by Mojaji Books, called Flipped. We cut then to Shirley Guela, bringing us a review of the latest by international best-selling Chilean author Isabel Allender. It's called The Wind Knows My Name. I read this novel last month and I really enjoyed it. It's different and very moving. So I'm looking forward to hearing how Shirley Guelo read it. That review is followed by a review of another book I've also recently read. Beryl Eichenberger will review the latest by South African author favorite Gail Schimmel. This is a domestic thriller and it's called Little Secrets. After that, a bit of music and then more reviews. What can I say? We love books around here. Rachel Funafafa is our grade 9 reviewer, and she's going to chat about a book called Sense and Second Degree Murder by Teresa Price. Vanessa Levenstein gives us one of her famous book bite reviews of an award winning novel by Joseph House called The Girl in the Water. And let's see what's next after that. So we have John Hanks sharing his review of a book called The Leopard in the Lala, which is the second book in the Poacher's Moon crime series by Ashling McCarthy. The first book was called Down at Jika Jika Tavern, which we reviewed here too. You may remember that. We move swiftly forward after that into some more music, and then it's time for some nonfiction. Guest reviewer Mark Falconer will chat to Marianne Schur about her book called Big Bully, which takes a deep dive into this epidemic of our times. And after that, we'll welcome Twanji Kalula to the show, who'll be interviewing the iconic Sindhiwe Magorna about her latest book. And that will just about wrap things up here on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio right after I tell you very briefly about a book I recently finished reading and very much enjoyed called The Bookbinder of Jericho by Pip Williams. So how about some music and then we can get on with the show. All the music in today's show has been, as always, carefully curated by Rick Everett and Dave Wood. Thank you so much for the music, you guys.
2: Your eyes are the eyes Of a woman in love And oh, how they give you away. Why try to deny You're a woman in love When I know very well what they say They say No moon in the sky Ever let such glow Some flame Deep within Made them shine Those eyes Are the eyes Of Evermore into mine, crazily gaze. Evermore into mine. eyes are the eyes of a woman in love, and may they gaze evermore into mine, crazily gaze evermore.
1: That track was Your Eyes Are the Eyes of a Woman in Love, and it was sung by Frankie Lane. And on with the show, Book Choice, with me, your host, Paige Nick, sponsored by Exclusive Books, right here on Fine Music Radio. We're opening up with a very warm book welcome to Beverly Roos-Muller, author of Bullet to the Heart. And Beverly is here to review Flipped by Tracy Hawthorne, published by the lovely Colleen Higgs at Majaji Books. Welcome to the show, Bev.
3: There's nothing better than a novel that just doesn't go the way you thought it would. This is Flipped by Tracy Hawthorne, a book that has the reader jogging happily along until it suddenly seizes you by the throat. There are two related parts to the story, set in a small country dorp not too far from Cape Town, rather like the place in which the author herself lives and works in the world of writing and editing. Two teenage girls, typically irritating, moody and unpredictable, are resistant of their single mother's attempts to keep them safe. They set out to a party one night and never return. Their moms have been friends, supporters of one another, as they made all the big decisions for the girls' lives, being mom's taxi, attending school meetings and prize givings, paying the bills while their exes are, instead, feathering new nests with new families. Now these mothers must face in their different and increasingly distant ways the worst of all fears, that of a missing child. The local under-resourced police at first think that the girls have just been naughty, wondering if they had run away. Nevertheless, Sergeant Tamara Cupido, a dutiful daughter herself, begins a real effort to discover what happened to them. But as the years tick on, There seems to be no solution to this tragic mystery. Six years later, the local traffic landscape has been turned into a war zone as the two lane national road to the northern border is upgraded to a giant dual carriageway. Stop, start traffic is the norm. The environment is crushed by vast machines that drop gravel and tarmac while excavating and scarring the landscape including some of the tall old trees that have served as landmarks for local travellers for generations. Then an accident happened, and it is at this point that the book takes off like a rocket. The driver is not missed for days as the intense summer heat beats down on the scene. To say any more would be a spoiler. What I can tell you is that once I reach this point, I was compelled to read late into the night to the very last page, and I'm usually very disciplined in turning out the light. This little gem of a book, for it is quite small in size, is easily read. It captures the characters and dialect of country people and places in a slightly rougher world, or so we imagine, yet one in which the same passions, hopes and fears are as fully registered as in city slickers. It is also above what is seen, and yet not perceived, either visually or emotionally, what has slipped and flipped before our unseeing eyes. Tracy Hawthorne is the author of many non-fiction books, including the award-winning biography of the artist John Mayer. Her short stories have been widely published, and she works as an accomplished editor for mainstream publications. This is her first novel. It is gripping and affecting, and you're going to have to hope with all your fingers crossed that the electricity stays on long enough for you to reach the last page. I've been talking about Flipped by Tracy Hawthorne.
1: Wonderful review. Thank you, Bev. Colleen at Majaji Books publishes some really interesting work. You can find all of that on the Majaji Books website. Our next review is of a book by an author I always look out for. She's one of those authors that you buy without ever needing to read the back cover blurb. Isabel Allender is a best-selling Chilean author that you may have already heard of. Her latest work is called The Wind Knows My Name. I read this book last month and it really moved me. I also very much admired the format of the book, which felt different to me and rather interesting. So fabulous Shirley Guella is here to tell us what she thought of it. Shirley, did you enjoy it as much as I did?
4: This Isabel Allende, The Wind Knows My Name, is of fleeting moments. It starts as though it's about a bunch of people with nothing to bind them except dislocation. Except, you know, she has a plan. She always has a plan. But still, in the beginning, it was difficult to come to terms with the book. I have loved Allende for years for her rounded characters who have dominated her novels I'm used to reading a book in one or two sittings, so getting under the skin of the characters and where she was going took some adjustment. The series of chapters on different people seemed like short stories, leaving you wondering, connected only by the sadness, the desolation, the isolation of their lives, refugees fleeing and the people whose lives touched theirs. Each character had loss, misery and despair. Each had hope, each had strength, and finally all fits together across 80 years. The Kinder transports Samuel, who was dispatched from Vienna to England at the age of five from the 1938 's bloody Kristallnacht, by an aching and desperate mother, sent only with a violin and with it, in his case, a medal given to him by a World War I soldier. Samuel eventually became connected to the seven-year-old Anita, a blind girl from El Salvador in Arizona in 2019. Of course, there's more How a young woman who entered the U.S. clinging to her father as he swam the Rio Grande, escaping from a hellhole that was home after a massacre. How she becomes entangled with both. Or the unforgettable and madcap Nadine, wife for a time to Samuel, and set in part in the jazzy environment of New Orleans. You will see how the humane and caring social worker, the Hispanic Selena, with a conscience and a psychic grandmother, puts all the pieces together and brings in a modern, money-mad, ambitious American lawyer whose life she changes too. Allende's attention to detail tells us so much about people. A hand-woven bag from Guatemala says all there is to say about Letitia. The parallels are obvious and not so obvious. The train Samuel takes and the train Anita and her mother take, both embarking on a path to an unknown future that will end differently. A final solution or a new life. The isolation that both feel, both parentless so young and unable to comprehend the sacrifices their single parents made, the dreams that keep them both going, and you are there with them as they travel their very own, very different ways. It makes you think, doesn't it, about the enduring power of the human spirit, the dignity of people, others set on a path to destruction with the inhumanity of the Nazis or the inhumanity set up by the U.S. government in separating families at the Mexican-U.S. border. Allende has done it again. This wonderful author of Violeta and Long Petal of the Sea and, and, and. This book is so of the present, so of the awful things we do to fellow man, yet she never leaves us without hope. As the cover note says, no, we're not lost. The wind knows my name and yours too.
1: And now more fiction, but we move a little closer to home than Chile. Literally. Gail Schimmel is a great South African author. She's published by Pan Macmillan, and she writes wonderfully tense domestic thrillers. These are page turners. I also, I recently read her latest that we're about to review. It's called Little Secrets, and Gail does a brilliant job of getting you to compulsively turn the pages. Beryl Eichenberger read it recently. Let's hear if she agrees.
5: I'm a huge fan of Gail Schimmel and her understanding and dissection of family life. With her seventh novel, that's apart from her collaborative novels, Little Secrets, once again brings a neat twist into a suburban middle-class Joburg family. The reader will recognise the characters, relate to them, and enjoy this domestic noir thriller in sheep's clothing. Schimmel's talent is creating a sense of false security and then shattering that with sinisterly, disruptive characters. Even as you open the book, there's a rather disquieting letter written to an absent mother, translated from the original. Hmm, you think. What's all this about? It's a little clue that will tweak your memory later. Schimmel immediately and cleverly switches pace to bring us into the perfect home of Monique and the perfectly tantalising dinner party she is throwing. And if you think I am repeating the word perfect, it is because this is who Monique is. The perfect wife to Ben and perfect mother to rebellious teenager Rosie and twins Cooper and Hugo. This is Monique's career and she is tuned in to what other people think of her. Only the best will do. Keeping up appearances is all important. She's a loving mother, keeping her kids on a straight path. Rosie knows if she follows her mom's strict rules, she will be safe. A good and listening wife, Ben knows that even if she does sometimes irritate him, he's understood. Maybe she and Ben didn't marry for all the right reasons, but their marriage is strong. Their kids haven't gone off the rails, and if there are any niggling doubts, well, they can be dealt with. Ben understands Monique. And while he may not always be in agreement, he keeps the peace. He adopts Monique's attitude of disapproval at the friend who has an affair, the mother who is too lenient, the teen who is a bad influence, and the friends who aren't maybe the sort of people they should be real friends with. A bit of a yes man, you might think. While there may be unacknowledged dissatisfactions, it works. Shimmel creates this even keel of what you think might just be the boringly perfect family. But her protagonists have emotional depth as you're drawn into their innermost thoughts and motivations. Then slowly, insidiously, she brings in characters that have another agenda. And imperceptibly, things start changing. She is a mistress of this art and captures her reader in her net. So when Ben meets Daisy... And Rosie meets Margie. Should we be worried? But it is the secrets and lies that support these friendships that cause Ben and Rosie to be sucked in, falling dangerously into clever and all-too-real traps. And it is Monique who must work out what is going on and salvage the accompanying damage and her family. Schimmel is a keen observer, a woman who respects the choices other women make and champions them intelligently. A writer who can dive under the layers of a person's psyche to slowly reveal the disturbing, the fear, the uncertainty and the hard resolve that make people do what they do. She always brings humour into her her books and the Shabbos dinner scene is one of those that will have you laughing out loud. The foibles of mothers and mothers-in-law are not lost on Schimmel's sharp pen. She knows just when to change pace, to ramp up the angst and make you gasp with fear. Changing from first to third person brings her protagonist closer to the reader. She's writing in a world where cyber-stalking is a norm, where social media can reveal everything and destroy us in a finger tap. Beware of who you trust. Take nothing at face value. Use technology wisely. It might be your reputation at stake. And reputation is all, isn't it? A great winter read, and once again Schimmel has her place on my bookshelf. Little Secrets is written by Gail Schimmel and published by Pan Macmillan.
0: Heaven is my woman's love Gently rising with the sun She gives me cause to face the day And brings me joy when day is done Heaven is my woman's love Heaven is the way I live She gives me all the love she can And then somehow finds more to give And when I see her in the morning light I feel the same as in the dark of night Of my woman's love Heaven is my woman's love Gently reaching out for me All she wants is what I am Searching not for what I'll be Heaven is my woman's love Happiness is what she gives As long as she's with me I'll find Heaven every day I live And when I see her in the morning light I feel the same as in the dark of night She is my everything love.
1: That was Heaven Is My Woman's Love, sung by Val Dunican, here on Fine Music Radio. And welcome back to Book Choice, which, as always, is sponsored by our very favorites at Exclusive Books. And I'm your host, Paige Nick. Next up, we move on to some young adult fiction. Our favorite YA reviewer, Rachel van Afefer, is here to tell us about what she's been reading. Rachel, as you know if you listen to the show regularly, is in grade 9 at Rustenburg High School. And this month she's chatting about a book called Sense and Se- No, not that one. This one is called Sense and Second Degree Murder, and it's by Terza Price. I was curious about the title, so I looked up the blurb, and Goodreads told me three of Jane Austen's classic novels receive a murder mystery makeover in this romantic and thrilling three book series. In sense and second degree murder, aspiring scientist Eleanor Dashwood and her sister Marianne, a budding detective, work together to solve a mystery. So I'm sure Rachel will tell us more about it. But I'm always fascinated by all these Austin makeovers through the ages. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Is this one worth a read for our young adult readers?
6: Sense and Secondary Murder by Terza Price is a second novel in her Jane Austen murder mystery series, which retells Austen's classic novels as detective stories. After their father's death in mysterious circumstances, Eleanor Dashwood, an aspiring chemist, and her younger sister Marianne, who wants to take over their father's detective agency, decides to investigate what they suspect to be his murder. But as they dig deeper into the case, they discover things are far more complicated than they ever could have thought. And don't forget, there's still a murder on the loose. I love this book so much. It was incredibly gripping, and I literally couldn't put it down. It was well written, and lots of exciting twists throughout. The book stayed faithful to Sense and Sensibility, and all the original characters were included with interesting new backgrounds. Sense and Secondary Murder is the second of three books in the series, and I will definitely be reading the next one when it comes out. This will be a great book for anyone who loves Jane Austen novels or murder mysteries.
1: You're all tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick. This is one of the few radio shows you can tune into in South Africa for a jam-packed hour full of book reviews and interviews. We're so grateful to Fine Music Radio for giving us this space every two weeks to honor books, authors, and publishers. Right, so what's next? None other than Vanessa Levenstein with one of her perfectly delectable book bites. This month, Vanessa will be chatting about a book called The Girl in the Water by Joseph House. This book has been longlisted and shortlisted for a number of awards, so let's hear all about it. Over to you, Vanessa. Welcome to the studio.
7: The war in Ukraine is tragic, frightening, and yet surreal. In spite of the constant images of bombed buildings and amputated lives, it still seems impossible to comprehend how communities have been reduced to wreckage. Where did this nightmare begin? What is the prequel? The Girl in the Water by Joseph Howells is an informed read. It's set in the mid-80s at the time of the Chernobyl disaster and the war in Afghanistan. The story focuses on a family living in Estonia and Ukraine. The book was hard to get into because the language doesn't flow. I initially thought it was a translation, which it's not. The author is a Canadian man writing about the coming of age of a young Russian girl, which he does convincingly and I'm sure it will be well-received by young adults. The protagonist is 16-year-old Nadia. She has a close relationship with her sister Nastia, who is recently married. Nadia's best friend is Ida, an orphan whose past is one of abuse and horror. Nadia's unstable mother, gentle father, and activist grandmother, friends, and even a kitten make up her world. This is a world where shadows of past traumas haunt a disturbing present and uneasy future. Her grandmother represents the past, a woman who ambushed a whole squad of Nazis to rescue their prisoners. It was at this time Nadia's grandfather disappeared. As for the future, Nadia's mother explains why she wanted her elder daughter to marry and says, I thought, let her have fun before anything really bad happens in her life. The present is suffocating and sinister as the Chernobyl disaster is covered up. That's right. Five days, five days after nuclear meltdown, the bastards didn't cancel the parade. They buggered off to save themselves. Nadia's inner thoughts are revealed in italics. As she reflects in the third person, Nadia became a devoted aunt, reading mermaid stories and absorbing radiation. The narrative is particularly chilling because we're reading it with foresight. Nastya and Nadia visit a monument where there's this inscription to Soviet citizens and prisoners of war, soldiers, officers of the Soviet army shot by German fascists in Babi Yar. Forward to March 2022, and President Zelensky tweets, what is the point of saying never again for 80 years if the world stays silent when a bomb drops on the same site as Babi Yar? Yet amidst the war, the spies, the toxic landscape, they are good, brave, decent people, and their small acts of kindness are testament to their resilience. We read to understand, to try to get under the skin of others, and A Girl in the Water does help one find touch points, connections and a greater empathy for ordinary people like Nadia. Where are those girls now? Girls who, like me, were 16, 17 in 1986? Are they refugees, soldiers and are they even alive? I'm going to end with a quote that touched me, as I think it will our fine music radio listeners. Even though it was said with dark undertones, in our context, it resonates for positive reasons. Classical music was monopolising the air. Surely, it is the balm for an earthquake and all manner of ills.
1: And before we head into some non-fiction, we've got one last review from John Hanks. John usually chats about nature non-fiction books, but this month he's here to review a book called The Leopard and the Lala by Ashling McCarthy, which has a natural theme, but is also a fast-paced mystery from what I hear.
8: Hardly a day goes by without yet another depressing account of the decimation of wildlife through illegal harvesting, or poaching as it's better known, in many countries in sub-Saharan Africa, with thousands of animals being killed for bushmeat or body parts and plants collected illegally in protected areas for ornamental use and for food and medicinal purposes. The growing impact on the continent's biodiversity cannot be ignored, fueled by what has grown to become a multi-million rand unregulated illegal trade, all too often involving the corruption of law enforcement personnel. To get a good understanding of some of the key elements involved, I have no hesitation in strongly recommending you read a novel entitled The Leopard in the Lala by Aisling McCarthy, a qualified social anthropologist who has lived in and worked in a remote village in rural Zululand, where the illegal wildlife trade has become part of everyday life. Experiencing at first hand the realities of poverty in those communities and greatly enhanced by living with no electricity, no running water, long drop toilets, and sleeping on the floor or in the bed with the host, gave her a sympathetic appreciation of Zulu culture and the problems of daily survival, which all too often are overlooked in published accounts of the illegal trade. Based on her interactions with the people she met, she has woven into her novel the complexities and frustrations of law enforcement staff coming up against people who refuse to be told that they cannot continue practicing their cultural and religious traditions, such as wearing leopard skins, a part of Zulu way of life for centuries, which today can only survive through a lucrative illegal trade. Ashling has succeeded in bringing into her story some of the action that should be taken to fight poaching, such as the vital importance of educating and working with young people who live next to protected areas on why biodiversity should be conserved and how to go about this through setting up enviro clubs. So many parts of a novel reflect the realities of the difficulties experienced by law enforcement agencies when poachers are taken to court and the frustrations experienced when convictions are delayed, often as a result of dubious decisions by magistrates and a reluctance to impose sentences that will act as a deterrent to other poachers. At the back of the book is an excellent five-page glossary of words used, which are probably not familiar to all readers. South Africa has 11 official languages, with a surprising number of words being adopted across the cultural groups and littered with words based on a mixture of isiZulu, English, Afrikaans, and Soto. The glossary is worth consulting regularly to appreciate and understand some of the scenes in the novel, and I suggest it should be moved to the front of the book if there is another printing. I would also suggest that the four-page author's note is moved to the front of the book, where Ashling stresses that the characters in the novel are fictitious, but where she describes how her work as an anthropologist gave her an understanding of Zulu culture by standing alongside the person who is sharing that culture and point of view, and above all, listening to what they have to say. She's also summarised other contexts and experiences she's, she's had related to poaching of leopards and rhinos and with other characters that feature in her story and as a consequence have succeeded admirably in giving her readers of the novel a rare and important insight into the complexities of managing a growing illegal wildlife trade. The title again, The Leopards in the Lala, is written by Ashley McCarthy, it's independently published in 2023 and is distributed by Blue Weaver. And you can buy a copy for 270 rand.
9: It takes a woman more powder and pink. To joyously clean out the drain in the sink And it takes an angel with long golden lashes And soft resident fingers for dumping the ashes Yes, it takes a woman, a dainty woman A sweetheart, a mistress, a wife Oh yes, it takes a woman, a fragile woman to bring you the sweet things in life. The frail young maiden who's constantly there for washing and blueing and shoeing the mare. And it takes a female for setting the table and weaning the guinea and cleaning the stable. Yes, it takes a woman, a dainty woman, a sweetheart, a mistress, a wife. Oh, yes, it takes a woman, a fragile
10: woman, to bring you the sweet things in life. And so.
9: Winter, she'll shovel the ice And lovingly set out the traps for the mice She's a joy and treasure for practically speaking To whom can you turn when the plumbing is
11: leaking? To that big, woman That fragile woman That
10: sweetheart, that
2: mistress why, that womanly
9: why Oh, yes, it takes a woman A husky woman To bring you the sweet things in life
10: Oh, yes, it takes a woman
1: That was It Takes a Woman from the film Hello, Dolly, sung by Walter Matthau. Well, I wonder if that's the actor Walter Matthau. Okay, so I googled it, and this is what the internet said. Hello, Dolly had strange casting with a young Barbara Streisand miscast as a much older woman and Mo- Walter Matthau singing. The film introduced movie audiences to two performers who later became successful Broadway musical stars, Michael Crawford and Tommy Tune. So there you have it. But now back to the books. And it's interview time with some non-fiction. We are lucky enough to have Mark Falconer join us on the show every now and then, mostly as the host of our fantastic Read It! series. But today, Mark's here to interview the author of a book on bullying by Marion Schur. Before that, let me just introduce you to Mark Falconer in case you haven't come across him on our show before. Mark has been a teacher all his professional life, sometimes teaching nothing more than aerobics in the 90s, but much more importantly, he's taught literature to high school and university undergrads. Mark believes strongly in the power of narrative as a way humans make sense of ourselves and our world. And he also believes in the importance of literature in this identity creation. As a professional educator, I couldn't think of a more appropriate person to chat to Marion Scho about her book on bullying. Welcome to the show to you both.
12: So, welcome, Marion. Marion Scher, author of Big Bully. Uh, an Epidemic of Unkindness. And it's such a pleasure to talk to you about your book, Marion. Thank you, Mark. So, so maybe the right place to start would be the subtitle, which is The Epidemic of Unkindness. Do you think, Marion, that there's more unkindness and bullying than there was?
13: I think so. I mean, the book covers different categories. So we start from teens and we go into emotional relationship bullying and then the workplace bullying um, and social media bullying. So we've got different areas. And I think perhaps where the unkindness comes in to a very large extent, of course, is people before would have to bully you to your face or behind your back, I suppose. But now they can hide behind screens. And and I think that's had a massive impact on bullying.
12: Yes. I mean, I think that's absolutely true. And obviously that probably affects teens more than I mean, I know it affects everyone and uh, adults would also be affected, but it probably is more relevant to teens. Absolutely. And you spend a lot of time talking about bullying, social media, bullying at schools.
13: Mm-hmm.
12: What advice would you give to, to school management to deal with bullying?
13: I'm so pleased you asked me that because I found it very interesting. Uh, first of all, very few schools replied to my request um, for interviews with the staff or especially to spend time with their students. When I did get to spend time uh, with students, in fact, from Westerford and other schools, just generally me speaking to teens, I think the thing that came across is parents are expecting schools to do something about this. And schools are expecting parents to do something about this. So my advice for schools would be there are organisations out there that are specialising in this. Get them in. They're the professionals. Get their help. But do something because it is going on. It's making kids' lives miserable. I mean, in the last three weeks here in Gauteng, we've seen three kids take their lives. Now, whether that was from social media bullying, I don't know. But that is becoming more common. And it's certainly some of those cases are down to this type of in- very insidious bullying.
12: So, so, Marion, here's the here's your opportunity to talk to schools. What would you yes. say? What kind of systemic approach would you give to school management and what can parents do that would support such a such an initiative what how would you systemically deal with it
13: yes i think the thing schools have to get over is protecting what they see as their brand you know every school has bullying i mean who hasn't where is there a school with absolutely no bullying and schools say well we have a bullying policy well that's all very well but you know do the children stick to it do they adhere to it very unlikely. And I think it is a mix of parents and schools getting involved. I think it's a mix of children feeling that they can speak to their parents and that when they do speak to the school, something is going to be done about it. There are government guidelines and each school has their own policy. But in actual fact, I think they're hoping this will go away on its own.
12: Let's come back to the to the question, Marion. What would you do if you were in the uh, oh, uh, school? Sorry, I
13: did evade that. How, what
12: would how do, do you do? deal I, with it? How do you deal with it?
13: Okay, I think, you know, you have life orientation now in schools, in high schools. So whether it could come, or life skills, whether it could come into that trying to make children more aware, bringing in speakers. I think that's terribly important. And there are organizations that offer this. And just making the children more aware. I know some schools have a be nice, be kind, you know, they have various posters up around the school and so on, but really, really instilling it. I think one way of doing it, I think of my kids when they were at high school, my daughter's school, when she was in matric, every matric girl, it was a girl's school, had to look after a new girl that came in. Um, And I think that's really cool that they feel instead Mm. of, you know, being intimidated by the older kids, they've got someone looking out for them and someone they can go to. That immediately creates a good atmosphere.
12: I mean, you do give some, in your book, step-by-step points of how parents and children could uh, deal with bullying. And, and one of the, I think, very helpful ones is anonymous reporting of bullying, an opportunity, a platform for kids yes. to kids to be able to report this. I mean, what I did notice is that your approach dealt with a, a particular section of schools. What would you say, for example, to the head of a... A Cape Flat school where gangsterism and you know that level of violence of bullying. How how would a school deal with such a thing?
13: Wow. Yes. Now that is another whole. I could do another book on that. Well, um, I
12: think you should. Oh, <laughs> I think you should.
13: Yeah. I mean, that's over that's the, the real
12: problem years. of our country, isn't it? we people, oh, kids, are bringing lives so. and guns and so stories.
13: on. Yeah. Over the years, I have done stories touching those areas. I remember doing the story on Tick. And you know, it's almost runaway these situations that they're extremely hard to deal with. And I think bullying takes on a whole new meaning in those gang areas. You know, those children are bullied unless they join a gang. So I think it's an awful lot more than I could have put between the pages of a book. I think there again, I'm sure I know there are organizations that, you know, are trying to help with this. Some are church organizations, some are former gangsters that are trying to help. For me, that's sort of a bit out of my area right now. I almost, I don't think I can answer you on that. What would I advise schools in those areas? Gosh, I think don't close your eyes, don't be blind. And again, be in touch with your pupils. I think it all boils down to whether students, whether pupils feel that door is open, that they can walk in there and really feel free to talk to the headmaster, the school counsellor, and be honest. And that something's going to be done about it. A lot of kids said to me, they feel that even if they do go to the people concerned, nothing really happens.
12: Thank you very much to Marianne Sher, author of Big Bully, An Epidemic of Unkindness. What a pleasure to talk to you.
13: My pleasure.
10: This is very strange. Everything is changing Suddenly a door can slam This is very strange Suddenly we're strangers And I start to wonder Who I am A woman, what is she made of? Why is a woman afraid of not being in love? What is a woman? What does she long for? Why is Is it wrong for a woman to be all alone? Young girls are April with rainbows and changes. One day they grow up and April is over forever to be. A woman means being lonely That's why a woman is only alive When in love Young girls are April With rainbows and cherries day.
1: Thanks again for the music, Dave and Rick. That was What is a Woman? performed by Mary Martin here on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, Paige Nick, sponsored by Exclusive Books. If you enjoy chatting about books, do join us on The Good Book Appreciation Society, which is a book club on Facebook with over 20,000 members. Just search for The Good Book Appreciation Society on Facebook and come and join in the book conversations. Plus, if you've missed any of the books or authors we've mentioned on today's show, And you'd like a memory refresher, you can download a podcast of our show on fmr.co.za or from our FMR app, which you've hopefully already downloaded from the App Store. For our last segment of the show, we now welcome Twanji Kalula. Today, Twanji's chatting to one of South Africa's most iconic writers. Sindhiwe Magona has an inimitable spirit and a real way with words. My favorite of hers is called Chasing the Tales of My Father's Castle, which came out in 2015 but you really can't go wrong with anything Cindywe Magona has written. Her latest is called I Write the Yearning Void, and it's a selection of essays from this talented and powerful voice. Welcome to the show, Twanji, and we're so happy to have you here, Sindhiwe.
11: Sindhiwe Magona needs little by way of introduction. She's an internationally renowned, award-winning writer, an activist, and a humanitarian Her new book, I Write the Yawning Void, is a collection of 14 impactful essays that span the transition from apartheid to the new South Africa, the HIV-AIDS pandemic, and the journey of our maturing democracy. Dr. Magona, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I love the title of this book. I think it just, it describes everything you've done creatively in your career. I write the yawning void. You always had a calling to fill yawning voids, as you put them.
14: Well, I suppose so, but these essays are more direct in doing that. Uh, what I've been doing is connected to the essays, but I've been uh, a little bit cautious, a little bit afraid, a little bit too, you know, scared to come out and say this is what is it is. In these essays, I try, I think, to be as bold and as uh, really upfront as I can be, very direct.
11: And what prompted you to put this book together now in your career after so many decades of writing?
14: Well, I was encouraged, not forced, <laughs> encouraged by a professor at in the States, Georgia State University, who has followed my work. And she's the one who said, you have written a lot of essays, collect them and she helped me put them together and then uh, we struggled to get a publisher until one of the publishers who doesn't do essays helped me get into the publisher who did um Vitz University Press
11: and was it an interesting experience to kind of look back at some of your work and some of the big ideas over the years and reread a lot of those essays some i had forgotten I didn't remember all the things I've been
14: you know saying for the last almost 30 years. So it, it it was a journey back in time. So the essays some of them are you know not new essays, some are revised essays, there are new essays too that were uh, you know written specifically for this um
11: collection. One of the interesting things you just said was that you were a bit fearful previously and that you're bold now. And it's hard to imagine having met you that you were restrained previously at previous times in your career.
14: There was some restraint, you know, people will be upset. I will be challenged, you know, people will say, who do you think? What expertise do you? Now I bring me as the expertise, my life, my lived life, you know, and what I've witnessed and what I know. And what I don't know, and also the comfort of knowing that nobody knows it all. I don't, but neither do you or you or you. This gives me comfort. So this is my truth.
11: One of the things that I've always liked about your work is that um, you are passionate about filling the gaps In our history or our recorded history and I really liked something you wrote in the introduction you said others have written about us I write to change that instead of moaning about it Um, and how important has that been for you as a black woman to kind of say our voices are absent let me not complain let me get
6: to work. As
14: a human being Mm. as a human being I'm trying to not run away from black or female but I first and foremost I'm a human being I'm a humanist I don't want to fight battles by othering other people. I have suffered under othering. I do not like othering. I do not like othering. When you do something or say something, I look at you as a human being, irrespective of gender or color of skin. So yes, when I started writing, it was a reaction to what was being said at the time. How, why is it that white people write about us? But, you know, when you complain, you change nothing. Action is what changes. Well, white people are writing, we're writing, are still writing. That doesn't stop you writing about you. And if we say, you know, there is one race, the human race, I can't complain about anybody writing about anybody. If we say you can't write because you look, your hair is longer, then I, I can't at the same time say we are one.
11: And then one of the other things that comes through in your work is that I was reading some of the essays and thinking, you know, we haven't made that much progress or we're repeating the same mistake again. And in your view, you, we know what the challenges are, particularly in our country, but in our world, where are we going wrong? What are we missing?
14: We are not learning from yesterday. We keep happening. We keep complaining Instead of examining what it was really that was done and then making a point of not doing it, we're doing the same thing that was done. When I read the newspaper or I hear on air, people are saying, oh, they are taking our jobs in the factories. They must go back to the trans guy. Isn't this a part Who is they who must go back to the trans guy? Why is it that factory jobs are yours? Don't you remember you were forced to work in the factories, but you couldn't work there? It works both ways. So how could you today really try to bring back discrimination of any kind?
11: You know, one of the things that was interesting in your earlier essays in the collection was the idea that freedom was coming um, and we know that the promise hasn't been delivered. Uh, What disappoints you the most about what's happened? The growing of the things
14: we hoped would diminish. Poverty. Poverty kills me. And it's rising. It's one of the few things that are going up. The bad things are going up. The good things are dwindling. Poverty and teenage pregnancy. And those two are linked somehow. And what we call race hate, which is really skin colour hate, because there's one race, the human race, when you hate someone because they look different, that's not race, that's skin colour, because people are the same.
11: And in terms of the political layer of the land, what has disappointed you most about that?
14: The unresponsiveness of government. I know theoretically you can hear we are doing this, and but eyewitness news, your eyes tell you a different story. I mean, I was disappointed early on. When I saw the houses, government was putting up for poor people. They were worse than the houses the freedom fighters had gone around the world condemning, calling them matchboxes. The government houses now for poor people um, are worse than the matchboxes of yesteryear. That's not progress.
11: And one of the things that's interesting that always comes through in your writing is that despite your... Anger at certain issues or frustration with things. There's always a sense of hope. What keeps you hopeful about the fact that the future can be different?
14: If we lose hope, we're done. I need to stay hopeful. Hope for me is the last thing to die in a in a person. As you die, you still cling to hope, not fear. Hope. If we are, you believe in life after death. There, there's hope. Hope is the one thing that anchors us. We must believe, we must hope, and therefore work towards changing our situation for the better.
11: And the one thing I like about your work, it's always very intentional, whether it's a poem or a novel, or you you can't help but leave a little bit of a message inside. What are you hoping readers will take away from this collection of essays?
14: The one, you know, really the important thing for me is self-awareness, knowing who you are. Knowing where you are, knowing the people of whom you are a part, and this cannot change. Anything you do not like in the way we live, do what you can to change it. You are a change agent. Don't just complain. Change things. Work to change those things you don't relish.
11: I was telling you earlier, but one of the things I really enjoy about every interaction with you is I walk away feeling inadequate because I think you you get into action so much more easily than I do. So I'm always very inspired by that. Um, And I think that this book is a beautiful reminder and celebration of the impact you continue to make, uh, I think, in in the world and in literature. So thank you very much for putting this collection together. And for those who love reading, I can't recommend it highly enough. I write The Yawning Void was published by Vitz University Press and retails for 360 rand. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Twanji, and thank you for joining us, Cindy. We are honored to have you on the show. Come back anytime, please. All right. So before we head off, I wanted to tell you what I've been reading. I recently finished The Bookbinder of Jericho by Pip Williams, which was published by Penguin Random House Essay. If you were tuned into our last book choice, Publishers Choice, you would have heard one of the publishers and Butcher Bricker from Exclusive Books talking about this book. This has been a really big book so far this year. So now what I'm going to say next is a little confusing, but please bear with me. This book is a sequel that is not a sequel, but it's also definitely a sequel. See, I told you it's confusing. I'm sounding a bit like an unreliable narrator, but you can trust me on this one, I promise. Let me try to explain myself. The Book Bind of Jericho by Pip Williams is a sort of kind of follow-up to the best-selling book, The Dictionary of Lost Words, which was just a huge international bestseller and which I absolutely loved. As a writer, I've always said that I would never write a sequel because, uh, you know why, aren't they just generally a bit less good than the first but this book made me think maybe I was wrong. Maybe if this book has anything to go by, one can write a sequel, but still have it be its own thing. As brilliant and fresh as the first, perhaps even better. Not walking in its shadow, but casting its own. The Bookbinder of Jericho is set just before the war starts. Peggy and her twin sister Maud work at the Bookbinders and live on a tiny narrowboat slash broken book library. Peggy reads and nicks one of everything she binds even though she's not supposed to. Well, she's not supposed to read or steal them. She also dreams of studying, which is another no-no for someone of her social standing in that era. Every now and then, a character and a book from the previous book, The Dictionary of Lost Words, makes an appearance. But it's woven neatly into the story. Other than that, these are standalone characters dealing with war and women's rights or lack thereof. So that's what I mean by a sequel that's not a sequel. Similar vibe, new and some old characters who live in the same world, and a whole new story all of its own. It's a brilliant book. I can comfortably recommend it for yourself or as a gift, whether you've read the first one or not. Pip Williams clearly knows what she's doing. I wonder if she already knows where she's going next. If she does, I'd like to go with her. And so that brings us to the end of the show and leaves me with just enough time to thank Mzuma Maketa for pulling this show together and to thank our reviewers, authors, and interviewers And of course, our publishers who send us lots of lovely books and our sponsors, Exclusive Books. If the book you seek does truly exist, you'll find it at your local Exclusive Books. Until next time, which is Tuesday, two weeks from now, happy reading.
0: Book Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people.
13: The Exclusive Books recommend selection makes it easy. By curating 25 of the most talked about and trending books hitting the shelves, you can, with one glance, get a snapshot of everything hot in the world of books, locally and internationally. Exclusive books also sell gifts, vouchers, stationery, and more. Pop into your nearest exclusive books and feast your eyes. For more information or to purchase online, visit exclusivebooks.co.za. FMR